Hello and welcome to Fantastic Comic Fan. I am your host, Star T. Fleming, and it is my mission to help you find your next digital comic book pick. From the golden age to now, I have been reading comics for over 40 years and have never lost my passion for comic books, something I try to pass on to new and old readers. Today is episode 3 for the week of October 3rd, 2021. All month, I'll be adding spooky stuff in celebration of my favorite holiday, Halloween. Like this week's look at Corinne Shedney's graphic novel on Bella Lugosi. Before I get on with the rest of the podcast, a few reminders. First, I'm slowly continuing to add the podcast to other providers, but not all of them are online yet. So I'm having some techy stuff with a few like Apple, but I'm still getting the hang of things and I'll let you know what's up. Next, I continue to stumble through the rookie mistakes and blunders. Please be patient. It'll get better. Finally, I'm still finding the right voice and experiment with content. Please feel free to let me know what you think at Fantastic Comic Fan, all one word, at gmail.com. Now, on to the rest of the podcast. Also, big film buff. As with many people, I've never tired of those old classic Universal monster movies, particularly Bela Lugosi's Dracula. Over the years, I have read up on Lugosi and his story, and, well, overall was far from happy. The fame, it didn't carry into his private life, where Lugosi had problems with addiction, typecasting, and his inability to handle his finances. Truthfully, it was hard to read how Dracula didn't do so much for his career as one might expect. If anything, his life story made me respect Lugosi more and better appreciate his body of film. Now, just in time for the spooky season, we have Corin Shadmi's graphic novel, Lugosi, The Rise and Fall of Hollywood's Dracula from Humanoids. Some of you may remember Shadmi from The Twilight Man, in which he told the story of Ross Serling. With the Lugosi work, I can describe it in one word, masterful. Growing up, no one dared put the words comic book and masterful together. At best, comics were looked upon as a hamper full of smelly socks. I remember in eighth grade trying to convince a teacher that comics were acceptable. She had decided to meet us in the middle. She agreed if we could find one grammar-free comic, it would all be okay. Forget the fact that comics encouraged one to read. As many can attest, comics act as a gateway to novels and other forms of literature. Something like Shadmi's creations would never be published, and if it were, it would not get the praise it so much deserves. Shadmi's art perfectly captures Lugosi's times and fleshes out the many guest stories, like Boris Karloff and Ed Woods, which take place in the overall narrative. However, the story isn't strictly linear as it covers Lugosi as a child in Hungary to his later years with director Ed Wood. So the narrative bounces around in time. But that is a good thing, because of how Shadmi weaves the tale, making everything make sense, and you truly understand Lugosi in the end. You may even have sympathy for him, even when whatever new calamity in Lugosi's life was his own doing and making. 
Shadmi does a lot of research on Lugosi with a bibliography at the end of the story. And you know, he put a lot of work and love into the graphic novel. So while you get the sadder parts of Lugosi's life, it's balanced with the positive aspects also. For example, Lugosi could be charming, funny, and he really did take his acting seriously no matter what role he chose. Now don't let Shadmi's latest work fall off your radar. That would be a terrible mistake. The rise and fall of Hollywood's Dracula makes for a great experience. You can order it from your usual venues and is also free to borrow via Hoopla. As a kid, I started reading Wonder Woman as a boy of 10, back around 1977. I know, I know, a lot of boys back then didn't read their comic. But I've always been a big fan of DC, because I think my area carried more DC than other comic publishers. Again, modern fans have no idea the hassles one went through before ordering comics at your favorite comic shop became the norm. Back then, you never knew if the next comic issue would show up, and often, it didn't. However, every week in every store I haunted, well, it was a bit like Christmas morning. You never knew what surprises awaited you as you thumbed through that week's comics. Wonder Woman has always been cool to me. Sure, I didn't follow every run, but I've kept up on Diana. I like DC as making a big deal for 80th anniversary, especially with this week's 100-page Super Spectacular. However, I don't think DC always treated Diana as the princess she deserved. While I loved and 100% suggest you read the Super Spectacular, it reminded me of some long-term problems throughout that issue, as it seems as if DC is just reconning how wonderful Diana was when in the past, she seemed to me to get the short end of the stick. Take the lead story of Steve Trevor, mourning the death of Wonder Woman. First, Steve Trevor at times seemed a second-rate character who has been killed, ignored, and not given a real chance to reach his full potential over time. To me... Diana and Steve are in the same league as Ralph and Sue, Clark and Lois, and Barry and Iris. Second, for Superman's 40th anniversary, Lois and Clark of Earth 2 married and stayed that way. Yes, the Earth 2, Wonder Woman, and Steve married and even had a daughter, but that's not even part of the DC current mythos. And yes, the Earth 1, when there was one, Diana and Steve did marry, in the last issue of a decades-long series that got cancelled. Oh, and she subsequently got uh, killed off in Crisis Number 12. Oh, and yeah, right now she's not really dead, but everyone thinks she's dead. I thought the lead-off story mourning Diana's death was strong, until I realized how little attention her death has really gotten. I don't think I've seen her death acknowledged much in other books. Her mother is a member of the Justice League, but I've not seen much mourning by Mom. Or Donna over in the Titans. Heck, I like to see Lois and Clark talk about Diana's death. Does anyone still remember how much DC mined the death of Superman? Not so much so, it seems like Wonder Woman. Now, Mark Wade does return with a Wonder Woman tale that seems to put her in a bit of a pedestal. Not precisely reflective of the past treatment of Wonder Woman. Barry and Hal talk about how Superman made the wise choice to make her their field commander. Sorry, but I call bull. One of my favorite runs of the Justice League was the 1970s run of Steve Englehart. He had some excellent conflicts true to characters of the satellite JLA, especially with Wonder Woman, which came to a head in 1943. The interaction between Superman 
and her in the Wade story is more like the Diana I remember and how she saw herself treated within the league. Again, the rest of the story, not so much. Take this bit of dialogue I borrowed from the DC wiki that appeared in JLA 143 from Diana's perspective. Am I in trial? My side of it is that ever since I asked the Justice League to monitor my performance and make sure I was fit for duty, you've been doing it, including all the time since I was supposed to be certified fit. No, I am always in trial, and I'm sick of it. Yes, I've been riding Green Arrow and Flash. Oliver Queen is a loudmouth know-it-all. And Barry Allen, a closet male chauvinist. So the bit of Diana giving Barry advice on how to reveal he's the Flash to Iris comes off as a bit hollow, and that feeling of retconning something she wasn't. But in my eyes, she should have been all along. Now, Fresh Catch very much captures the spirit of those Golden Age stories, complete with Edda and the Holiday Girls. Such a joy to read. In Tom King, he takes on the depowered Diana of the early 70s and show that it isn't the powers that made Diana wonderful, while also giving a new spin on why Clark and Diana could never be a couple. The whole comic is a tribute to Wonder Woman, a feel-good trip down memory lane, true to all the various takes of her over the decades. But, again, this story feels a little too little too late. While you get, for example, Nubia and Artemis, both important in the Wonder Woman mythos, you get reminded of how little attention the Wonder Woman family gets compared to both Superman and Batman families. Diana, and everything connected to her, deserves far more than past treatment. Let the Super Spectacular remind everyone, not just of her past, but also celebrate how far Wonder Woman and those connected with her can go moving forward. In my Instagram and sometimes Twitter posts, I try to acknowledge some of the birthdays of current creators and those gone, especially those who aren't on everyone's radar. It's hard to keep track because the industry has always had an abundance of creators. Admittedly, I made a mistake over the weekend by not acknowledging Ramona Freyden, who turned 95 on October 2nd. Now, longtime fans are quite familiar with this iconic and legendary creator, whose fingerprints are over comics and comic strips. Ramona was the artist of Brenda Starr for 15 years, until she retired from the strip in 1995. But, fans new to comics should know a little bit about her, because her contributions helped form the foundation for today's creators. For example, Back at the beginning of the Silver Age, she had a hand in revamping Aquaman and co-created Garth, or Aquaman as he was known in the beginning. Then, in 1965, she co-created Metamorpho, which debuted in Brave and the Bull 59, and she would go on to illustrate his first four issues of his own series. Ramona is another example of why digital comics need to be available through Comixology and DP's Infinite service. Unfortunately, unless you have a lot of money and know where to track down those comics, you have a difficulty seeing her work. The bulk of her work appeared in DC Comics, and thankfully, DC has archived the 70s Super Friends series, of which she drew most of the stories. My recommendation? Track down some of them Super Friends stories. Because my brief spotlight on her career only skims the surface of her contributions. Another fantastic source on Ramona and other female creators of the Woman in Comics wiki, an invaluable source on these great creators. Again, happy belated birthday, Ramona. Many more to come.
I've always had a fascination with Manuel, a.k.a. Colonel John Jameson, son of J. Jonah Jameson. So, as I was putting together something on Manuel, I decided to travel back in time to see where my fascination was with the character. For me, 1977 was a golden age of comics. I was 10 and read all the comics I could find. Modern fans used to comic shops have no idea how hard it was to keep up with runs of comics in the days of Spotty, New Stand Distribution. Once upon, my local Kmart store carried tons of books. So many of my lifelong favorite authors came from their book section. In 1977, Pocket Books had a line of Marvel reprints. Among those goodies was Spider-Man, starting with the very first issue of Amazing. Then their pages were small, but all my kids' eyes cared about were those reprints in color. And within that very first issue, Spider-Man rescued John, and of course, received no credit for the rescue. Now, my grade school friend Ricky loved Spider-Man, would frequently loan me copies of his amazing Spider-Man. I remember Spider-Man perched on a wall as a mummy tried to take out with good old JJ. This was 1979, and the next issue of Amazing Spider-Man, number 190, it showed the banished mummy to be Man-Wolf. From then on, I loved Man-Wolf. But as I was traveling down memory road with this man wolf memory, I had one of those I had one of those wobby damn moments. This is Mar Wolfman and John Byrne behind this great raid two parter. And I hadn't clicked until now. Hey, I read a lot of comics, but it's hard to keep track of all those creative teams over all those years. But before this two parter in Amazing Spider Man, Man Wolf had his own series. And as part of Marvel's nineteen seventies push into horror, Manuel started in Creatures in the Loose in 1974 and 75. His adventures went from issue 30 all the way to the end of the series in issue 37. Within this run, he battled Craven the Hunter, and towards the end, he found him starring out in outer space. It made for some good Brian Age fun. I always thought they could have done more with the Manwolf over the years. Not that he hasn't been used, but I never really felt the character reached his full potential. I'd love to see him return to Amazing Spider-Man, especially since the change in relationship between his father and Spidey. Eh, one can only hope for a better future for our man-wolf. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Again, I would love to hear from you, fantasticcomicfan at gmail.com. Remember, new episodes every Wednesday. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope to see you next time.